Morning, everyone. Hello, my name's Steph. I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, this is the last in our um, series on prayer. So we've been doing a sermon series on prayer. It's the last one today. Next week, we've got Mike Betts with us, which would be great. So please uh, make sure that you're here and you're raring to go. Um, I know it would be a blessing when Mike is with us. Um, but today, like I say, is our final one on prayer. And um, just as I've been reflecting on the brilliant... I mean, we've had some great sermons on prayer, haven't we? I mean, wow, the amount... Thank you, Rose. Rose, that's what we're looking for. But um, just obviously, as one of the pastors, I have the privilege of being around lots of people and you have lots of conversations and, and just the, fee- the feedback on some of the press sermons has been fantastic. So, um, you know, it's just thanks to those of you that have preached as part of this series um, and also obviously to our guests who aren't here, but I know that they've been a blessing too. And um, what I wanted to do today was was ask the big question, really, and then teach from the Bible on it. And the question is this. Does prayer really make a difference to situations? Um, it's really important that we actually stop and, and ask ourselves that because I think if we, if we don't and we're a bit vague on it, uh, it will negatively impact your prayer life, inevitably. There will come a point where you, 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 you either grind to a halt in praying or you lose heart or you still pray but you're kind of half there, half not because you're not really convinced it's making a difference. So I, I want to... I want to speak about this. Today's going to be quite, um, well, hopefully it's theological every Sunday, but it's going to take a bit of, a bit of, perhaps a bit more grappling than usual. If you're not used to church and stuff, I'll, I'll try and use layman's terms. Um, anything I say, any words I say, you think, what does that word mean? Just stick your hand up and say, what does that mean? I'll clarify it. That's not bad. It's good to do that. Um, so we'll do our best to be as helpful as possible if, if this is like a new thing for you. Um, but I'll try and make it as understandable as I can. Now, there are generally speaking two schools of thought um, that, that, that Christians have around the idea of prayer. I'm going to unpack the first one and then unpack the second one. But the two schools of thought are this. Number one is um, that prayer changes us. I'll talk about that in a minute. When we pray, we change as a result of praying. And the second one is that prayer changes situations. So the actual situations that we are praying about are changed through prayer. Um, and it, depending on your Christian history, what churches you've been brought up with, what's been emphasised, one or the other probably would have been emphasised. Um, so I'm going to spend a little bit of time on why people teach that prayer changes us, um, make a couple of quick comments on that, and then spend the, the bulk of our time on the second one, because that's one that I really feel like today it's important that we un- understand and get clear on. So here's the logic when we're talking about prayer changes us. Um, so the logic goes like this. Number one, God is sovereign. Now, the, the, the word sovereign means that God is king, that God reigns over all. And so the various, the various things the Bible teaches about God being sovereign is number one, um, that God is all-knowing, that he knows everything. Nothing is beyond his intellectual grasp. Past, present, future, he knows all things that have ever happened, are happening, will happen now in this moment. The theological word for it is omniscience, that he knows all things. That's part of what it means for God to be sovereign. So we're going to paint a picture of what it means for God to be sovereign. Secondly, that God has all power and all authority, that nothing is outside of his reach. That he doesn't have to ask permission to get involved with anything or to make a decision. He is, he is absolutely executive in his decision making. He doesn't need to take his decisions to a council and get agreement. There's, in one sense, no accountability in that sense. He is God. And he has all power 
and he has all authority. This is what we mean by God's sovereignty. Thirdly, that he's all present, that he's everywhere at the same time, that sometimes he pours out his Holy Spirit or makes his presence known in a remarkable way, but he's everywhere at the same time. Let me just quickly demonstrate what I mean by this. Just use this chair. Sorry, excuse me. So um, pretend that this chair, pretend it hasn't got a big gap and it's not see-through, right? So, okay, so to pretend it's much more solid than this, right? If this chair was really, really solid, right, and I was really, really quiet, and I was behind here, would you know I was in the room? It's not a trick question, guys. No. Okay. Would I be in the room? Okay. If I then went like this, ta-da, would you know I was in the room? Right. So God's presence is everywhere, but sometimes he manifests his presence in a peculiar way whereby you suddenly realize, wow, God's in the house. Okay. So God's presence, God is all present. He is here now. In fact, the Bible uses phrase, in him we live and move and have our being. All things hold together in him. He's, he's not just made creation and then stepped back. He's, he's, although he is not part of creation, he's intimately involved with his creation. And the whole of creation throbs with his glory. Okay? And, but then every now and then he will make his presence known in an extraordinary way. And everyone goes, ah, because he's amazing. And you're never the same again. So God is all present. This is part of what it means for him to be sovereign. And then that he transcends time and space, that time and space are part of created order. And he's beyond creation. Therefore, in a sense, he's not bound by time and he's not bound by space. These are part of creation, which he is beyond, which he transcends. Now, these are the kind of uh, these are biblical truths about the sovereignty of God. And we can be so immersed as Christians in these truths that where it can take us is this idea that it's all, therefore, a divine setup. That it's kind of everything is pre-planned, everything is foreordained. Um, so that, and there are scriptures which, you know, I'll read you a couple of scriptures which would help you to understand why, why we would think this. So Psalm 139, when David is um, talking about how well God knows him, uh, in verse 16, he says, Your eyes saw my unformed substance in your book. In your book were written every one of my days that were formed for me, when as yet there were none of them. Before I'd lived any of my days, you'd written them in your book. It's in a sense, it's, and he says things like, you, you know, you know my sitting down and my stand up. Before a word is on my tongue, you know it full well. And so it kind of can generate this idea that, it, that, that the whole thing is a divine setup in that sense. It's kind of like, well, God is all pre planned. It's all foreordained. There are scriptures like Romans 8, 28. He causes everything to work together for good. He is so sovereignly in control over all things that you can kind of leave you thinking where it can take you. The next logical step is therefore prayer. Prayer. If I were to pray about a situation, I won't really change it. But in the process of prayer, I'm sure I'll be changed. So take Job, for example, the story of Job in the Bible. We've got a man who suffers in extraordinarily horrific ways, and there's no rhyme or reason to it seemingly. His friends come along and try and comfort him, um, but they're sort of saying, well, look, look at how much you're suffering. We kind of believe, we believe in God, and we believe in God as a God of justice, and you know, for you to suffer this much, you surely have done something wrong. And Job the whole time is saying, you know what, I've actually held, I've lived a life of integrity. I, 
I'm sure that, you know, I'm not perfect, but I don't deserve this. This isn't a case of one plus one equals two. This is, this is beyond rhyme and reason. And, and, and the whole story is trying to make sense of suffering. And then what happens is in a moment, suddenly God speaks in out of the storm into the conversation and starts saying things like, where were you when I created the earth? And what happens is through that situation is that Job ends up saying, do you know what, I'm going to put my hand on my mouth. <laughs> I spoke about things that were too great for me. I'm going to sit in, in sackcloth and ashes and I'm going to repent. I'm insignificant. And what happens is, is that actually the situation at that point doesn't change. But through prayer and in, an, an encounter with God, he's changed. Does that make sense? He's altered. His outlook is altered. His questions actually aren't even answered. But God just says, where were you? <laughs> and he's like, oh. And he suddenly, he's, he is reorientated around the greatness of God and says, do you know what? At the end of the day, what do I know? So his heart is affected by prayer. He himself has been changed. And um, now here's the thing. Everything I've said and preached so far is true. This, it's true. But it's not the whole truth. It's not the whole truth. And part of growing as a mature Christian is that you're able to take two truths that are revealed in the Bible that don't contradict one another, but at the same time, you're not exactly sure in every detail how they intersect. But you say, do you know what? That's true. And that's true. And I'm going to learn to live in the tension of both of these things. And when you do that, you watch what happens. The fruit starts to come because you get it, you understand it, and you're beginning to walk in it and, and accept what the Lord has revealed, even though you can't understand every element of it. But if this is the only truth that you receive, then it will lead you to a place where if a situation comes up um, that you just think, oh God, I wish this would be different, you probably won't really go at it in prayer because you think, you know what, it's probably it's all just kind of lined up anyway. And you kind of develop a fatalism. Whatever will be, will be. But it's kind of under the, it travels under the Christian title of God is sovereign. But then when you read the Bible and you read about those who believed God was sovereign, you don't find that same attitude of whatever will be, will be. So you think, hold on a minute, I must, be, I must not have a complete view of what it means for God to be God in order to be responding in this way. So what's the other truth? Well, there's another very, very big truth, which I want to introduce to you. Um, and this is the, it's the theological, are you with me so far? Okay, and it's the theological kind of biblical understanding of, of what it means, not so much about God's sovereignty, but the second thing is this, is that prayer changes situations, and here's the logic. Number one, God has created mankind in his own, sorry, let's just say image, sorry, in his own image. So God has created mankind in his own image. So we've got a really solid understanding of the doctrine of God there. Here we're going to understand the doctrine of mankind. Who are we? in God's design, in God's plan. Who are we in what God has done? And as we understand this, it will hopefully help us see how these things move together. Now, as this PowerPoint comes up bit by bit, um, the left and the right that are on the same level, they correspond to one another. Okay, So just to help you see how these things hopefully link up. So God has made us in his own image. Now, the key scripture for that is Genesis 1, the very famous story of creation. And people often have these long conversations about what does it mean to be made in the image of God? Well, probably the biggest clue is in the text, as it normally is. It says, God says, let us make man in our image, Genesis 1.26, after our likeness, and let them have dominion. It's a word about sovereignty. Let them have rule. 
Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens, over the livestock, over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. And so God has made creation, and then he's given, he's, he's given, he gives people dominion over creation. So part of how they're going to reflect his image is that they're going to, so that the rule that he has over his creation, they will, as representatives of him, demonstrate that rule in creation. So suddenly you start to reckon, not, not just with who God is, but who he has made us to be, and think you begin to get a fuller picture of what God is doing here, and we'll see how it ties in with prayer as we go through. So God has made us in his image. And so the first thing is, is that we are, he is all-knowing, but he wants us to know his purpose and his will. He actually wants to share with his people what is his purpose and his will. Yes, he knows all things, but he wants to share what he knows with us. He wants to share his heart, his purpose, his plan with us. That's actually what he wants to do. It's not that any one human being is going to be omniscient. It's not that altogether will become omniscient, but it's that God wants the people that he is able to give divine knowledge to, understand into about situations whereby you will understand what is the purpose of God in this situation because he shared it with you. Right? That's pretty big stuff. That's part of being in relationship with God. It's part of what God has done in making us in his image. It's part of what is driving that, that he wants to reveal the deep things of his heart and of his spirit with a people that live with him in harmony with him. That's what he wants to do. Secondly, as I said earlier, he wants us to exercise dominion on his behalf. So he has all power and authority, and yet there's, an, there's, a, there's the power of the Holy Spirit and the authority of the name of Jesus Christ that is entrusted to us that we might be able to exercise that in situations when we know his will. You see, if we don't know the will of God then, and we're not interested in the will of God, then power and authority are scary and dangerous things. Okay? People often think, I don't like the idea of power and authority because of the abuse that happens, because of the things that are done in, with, with those in power and the oppression. And you think, I don't like it. Actually, no, authority and power are really good things. But when they're divorced from submission to a good and kind God, they can get really ugly. Things can get really twisted. But if you're in relationship with God and in submission to his will and he's sharing with you his heart for situations, then to be entrusted with power and authority means that you then can make a difference in those situations according to his will. And what you see is is that it's actually God's desire to work out his will through his people. That is the will of a sovereign God. In his sovereignty, he is ordained to work out his purpose through his people. To have a bunch of people that aren't simply sitting there happy because he's sovereign, but people that are happy to say, Do you know what, I really I actually want to, I want to rise up and be all that you've called me to be. I want to learn how to shoulder responsibility with you. I want to learn how to demonstrate your dignity and your purposes on the earth. That's extraordinary. And you can begin to see now where his sovereignty has nothing to do with our passivity. But his sovereignty, we get to know his heart and we think, wow, Lord, you want me to actually... Rise up with you. Third thing, he's all present, yes, but actually he commissions them, Adam and Eve. He says, fill the earth. Multiply and fill the earth. Why? Because I want my earth, the earth to be filled with my image. You're my image bearers. Now go and multiply and fill the earth so that the earth is filled with my image. So God's way of making his presence known, his primary way of making his presence known in the earth is to have a spirit-filled people that fill the whole earth. That's what he wants to do. Now, for Adam and Eve, it was, this was before they'd fallen into sin. So they were, they, were, they were bearing his image nicely. 
And their role really was to multiply and fill the earth with his image. Then they fell into sin and now physical multiplication now as the blessing that it is. But what you end up doing is filling the earth with uh, people that still carry something of the image of God and therefore do amazing things, but also fallen people who are corrupt at their core, um, as we all are born naturally, and therefore cause a lot of pain and damage. Which God has renewed in Christ. We'll get to that in a minute. We will get there. We must get there. But you see, you've got this situation where the idea is to fill the earth with his image. So how do we work that out now? Well, just think for a moment. What Over the last few years, we've had the joy and the heartache of saying goodbye to some very dear brothers and sisters in Christ and dear friends that have gone to other nations and other cities and other places to do what? Essentially to fill the earth with his image. People that have been renewed in Christ, filled with the Holy Spirit and have submitted their life to the purposes of God and then have felt God's leading to go there, to go to wherever it might be, wherever the countries that, that we send people to, Germany, Latvia, Poland, Middle East, and fill that place where they're going to shine out his, his image and his glory. You see, when we do that, it's not just us being an exciting church. You've got to understand that. It's not just, oh, or, or it's not just, oh, oh Steph's, Steph's off on one again. Right? Oh, Stephen must have got bored because someone else is going, right? Listen, understand properly what's going on there. It's we're a commissioned people. We're a commissioned people. And, and the word that should be ringing in our ears is go. And it's not comfortable and it is costly. It's costly on every level. It's costly relationally, it's costly financially, it's costly spiritually. Everyone that's left behind feels the cost of it. But it's not that it's trendy. It's not that it's fun. It's not let's be a hip church. It's we want to be obedient. We want to be obedient. And we are absolutely committed to building strong, good local church here. Absolutely committed. You must never worry. Is there no concern about that? There is, there is a lot of concern about that. And I would say probably there's not many thoughts that go through my mind in any given day that are not related to that. Myself, my wife, my children, and many of you have poured out our lives for the health and life of this local church for the last 10 years. We care deeply about it. But it's not enough to be a good local church. We must embrace the Great Commission, which is we go where we are and we go. So we've just got to, we've got to get to grips with that because it's much bigger than us, our comfort, what, we actually, what, what we'd like short-term What's most, what's most fun in the short term? There is a cost to it. But actually, this is part of us saying, I've been made in the image of God. And one way or the other, I'm going to be invested in this. Because this is the purpose of God. And here's a really interesting one. All throughout the Bible, you never find a time where God does not relate to people in time and space. So yes, God may be outside of time and space, but he doesn't relate to us outside of... Try relating to God outside of time and space, guys. It's going to be weird. Well, it's nonsense. We can't. He is outside of time and space, but he relates to us in time and space. You think, well, what am I getting? It sounds a bit philosophical. It sounds a bit nebulous. Let me give an example. Let me give an example. Because this is... You've got to, if you don't get this, you'll get it wrong about God. So we've got Moses in the wilderness and the Israelites, as usual, playing up. And God says, I've had enough of them and I'm going to destroy them. He says to Moses, I'm going to destroy them and I'm going to start again with you. Now, what would you have done if you was Moses? 
I start dreaming some dreams at that point. <clears throat> the Moses carries God's heart. Listen to this. Moses implored the Lord his God and said, Oh Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians say with evil intent he brought them out to kill them in the mountains and to consume them from the face of the earth? Turn from your burning anger and relent from this disaster against your people. Remember Abraham and Isaac and Israel, your servants. You swore to them by your own self. You said to them, I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven. And all this land that I promised, I will give to your offspring and they shall inherit it forever. Listen to this. And the Lord relented from the disaster that he had spoken of bringing on his people. In time and in space, on a mountain in the wilderness, in time, in a moment of history, God is prevailed upon by a man's prayer. Now, some people, they get really philosophical and say, well, I, you know, they say, well, God's outside of time and space. So the, it's just kind of a phrase to help us kind of understand, you know, it's just a way of kind of making it feel kind of human. It's not what the text says. God relented. That word means sighed. God goes, ah. I've been prevailed upon by a man who knows my heart. I've been prevailed upon by a man who knows my character. I've been prevailed upon by a man who knows my promises. And I will turn from my wrath. Prayer changes situations. Sometimes you're before God and you realise it's my attitude that's wrong. It's my perspective that's skewed. I need to be changed by this. Other times you get before God and you know you are carrying the heart, purpose and will of God in your heart about this situation and it ought not to be like this. And you prevail in heaven in prayer and you say this must stop. And you're praying the very heart of God back to God. And you're saying, well, why, why does it work like that? It works like that because God has ordained in his sovereign wisdom that he will draw us up into his purposes and we will accomplish his purposes together. He doesn't need us. He could do it all sovereignly in a moment, but he has ordained that it be that way. You must say, well, why can't it be another way? If it was another way, then you've got to rethink the whole system. You must say, well, why can't it be another way? And we just kind of live on earth. No, no, no. The fact that you are who you are, a human being made in the image of God, that's, that's all part of this. If you want to do it another way, the whole thing changes. The whole thing. You, you're just creating a whole different paradigm. You're creating something completely different. You can't just say, why can't it be like this? But God just moves sovereignly. Listen, God has made you in his image, so it's like this. So all well and good, God just do it sovereignly, but you might be a ping pong ball from now on. Or something equally unimpressive. Because you've changed the system. You've created a whole new system. The system is you're made in his image. The system is you, ca- you carry his heart. The system is his spirit can indwell you. The system is we will reign with him. The system is we will walk with him. We will, we will do these things with him by his sovereign decree. That never means at any point he can't just step in sovereignly. He has all freedom to do whatever he wants whenever he wants. But that never means I get to say, oh, well, it doesn't matter then. It really matters. It really, really matters. Is this making sense? Yeah. Jesus gives us a wonderful model of this. Jesus understands. So in Jesus, we see that he knew the purpose and will of the Father. He said, I only need to do what I see the Father doing. He came, he knew, he knew why he had come. 
And as a result, he's able to be streamlined and give himself to the right things. He knew the will of God. He knew the purpose of God for his life. In Jesus, we see him exercising dominion on behalf of God's will. We see him healing the sick, casting out demons, bringing good news to the poor, relieving oppression. We see it, don't we? He's, what's he doing there? He's, he's expre- he says the kingdom of God is near. He's bringing, this is what the kingdom looks like. There's light, there's life, there's deliverance, there's freedom. Wow. He gives us the model and then he says things to us like, you'll do what I do if you believe in me. You'll do what I do. Why does he say that? Because he's saying essentially what I'm doing, it's not just because I'm divine, I'm God, it's because I'm a man filled with the spirit. I'm modeling to you what true humanity looks like. It's what it looks like, glorified humanity. Jesus understood that God's plan was to fill the earth with his image. And so Jesus, he insisted on going from here to there, all around the area of, of Palestine. He, insisted he, wouldn't be, he wouldn't be kept in one place by the pressure of others. There was one time he went to a town and did lots of amazing healings and wonderful works. And the news spread to the other towns. And so overnight, they all seemed to get, start bringing them to this town. Jesus goes outside of the town to pray in the wilderness throughout the night. And then morning comes and the disciples are freaking out because suddenly all these really ill people have arrived and Jesus isn't here. So they go and find him and say, you've got to come. They're everywhere now and we need you. And Jesus says, no, we're going to go that way. They say, what do you mean you're going to go that way? Jesus says, I know why I've come. He knew he was a man on a purpose. He was able to make the right decisions in the face of pressure from others. Why? Because he knew in, in these three years, I need to go there, 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 there. I need to start something around these places. And that's what he did. Extraordinary courage. I mean, I mean it, this is the man of compassion. He's leaving need there because there's always need. There's always going to be need. Jesus knows that. There will always be need. The need is not the call. There's always need. You need to be able to know, God, what are you calling me to do? Now, of course, if someone's drowning in the canal, help them out. Isn't all well, not called? No, you help them out. But in terms of decisions you make for life, you need to know, Lord, what are you saying? You really do. And Jesus relates to the Father in time and space. There's these three years, these, or these 33 years, which, it, which happened in time and space, which, man alive, I mean... You know, look, look at those years. Jesus, the pressure that he's under in time and space, sins once and he cannot bear our sins on the cross. Sins once is game over for the whole lot of us. Imagine living with that. And he's still called a man of joy. Extraordinary. Don't you love him? He's living with that whole thing and the temptations are coming and Satan says to him, do you know what? If you just bow down to me, just, just the once, just bow down to me once, I'll give you the nations. You can circumvent the cross. I'll get you straight to glory. I'll get you straight to glory. Jesus pulls out his scripture sword and says, you'll bow down to the Lord and serve him only. And then he's in the garden of Gethsemane before the cross and it's beginning to dawn on him what he's about to taste on the cross. And the temptation surely to up and run. No one would have thought any worse of him. But he knew, Father, I know if there's another way, please, but not my will, yours be done. Extraordinary. There he's relating to him in this time and this space. And as a result of that act in time and space, look at us today in this room. We wouldn't be sitting here in this room if you hadn't done that. Who knows what would have happened? But not this. Not us coming and singing, I'm forgiven, hallelujah. We wouldn't be singing that. You wouldn't be singing, Lord, I was dead, but now I'm alive. You wouldn't be singing that. Because it's all a result of the cross and the resurrection. It's what Jesus has done for us. It's who he is. The Bible says in Revelation 5, 
Ah, I should know where it is. It's the last book. Worthy are you. You were slain. And by your blood, you ransomed people for God. From every tribe and language and people and nation, you've made them a kingdom and priests to our God. And they shall reign on the earth. Here's the thing, you see, by the blood of Jesus, we've been restored out of our fallen state into a place where we are a kingdom and priests, where, 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 where rule and reign and dominion have been restored to us. Now that we, are, we have said, Jesus, I want you to be Lord of my life. I want to serve you. I'm not going to do my own thing anymore. Now we can be entrusted again with authority because we're not going to use it to, to crush others or just get our own way or just try and get rich. We're going to use any influence that the Lord gives us for his glory. So now if you're a believer and you're a manager somewhere and God's put two people that you're responsible for in the workplace, you've got an amazing opportunity there to shine the glory of God there. Most people say that most people that leave their work have actually left their manager. Most people who leave their job have actually left their manager. The person they're directly reportable to, they're the ones who create what their work experience is like. If you're here and you're a manager, God's made you a kingdom. You've got authority and dominion to display compassion, justice, graciousness, truthfulness, humility, love, joy. What an honour. You've been restored to that. If you're here and you're a street sweeper, you've got a number of streets that are allocated to you around the borough or around another borough. You've got, you've got from the Lord entrustment to do that to the glory of God and to make those streets shine with his glory as best you can with the tools that you've got. You've been restored, you see, so you're like kingdom, but it's priests. The priest would represent the people before God. So we're all priests now. We're all priests. If you say to me, you the priest, I'll say, yeah, but you know what we all are. A kingdom of priests. So, and, and so this is where prayer comes in now, you see. As priests, we are called to, to, to be before God interceding for the people. Interceding for our brothers and sisters in Christ, interceding for those who don't know him yet, interceding for nations. You don't do that. That has an impact. You abdicate that. You decide, well, God's sovereign, so fine. No, you've broken the whole thing at that point. You've, 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 you've broken it. That's not what it is. What it is, is God's made you a priesthood. Therefore, in his sovereignty, he's made you a priesthood. So let's be before him naming people that would never name themselves. I love doing that. So, Lord, I know this person would never, ever name themselves before your throne. So I'm going to name them before you and say, Lord, would you have mercy on them? That's priestly. It's a priestly thing to do. This is who he has made us. The final thing to say is that the context we live in is a context of warfare. Genuine warfare. It's not a dualism. It's not who's going to win. We know who's going to win. We know who's going to win. It's not like, oh, it could go either way. We know who's going to win. We know who's won the war. Jesus has the victory. He's disarmed. Satan at the cross. And yet, interestingly, the bit of the Bible written after the cross, even though it's very clear Satan's been disarmed, it never underestimates his influence, never underestimates his cunning, never underestimates his potential power to destroy lives, which is why it's constantly saying, be watchful, be on the alert, be sober, be sober, be confident, but be sober. Be absolutely sure of your victory in Christ, but be alert. That's the tone of the New Testament because the warfare is real. It's a little bit like a good image. It's not a perfect image, but a good image is like D-Day. Once, once really the Allies had got established um, into Normandy and really got the foothold, really to be, in many ways everyone realised it's, it's happened now. It's a matter of time before the war's won. But boy, it was fierce fighting all the way through. 
I mean, you, you read a bit of history. It was fierce fighting all the way through. And we actually get that tone in Revelation 12. It's final scripture for today where it says, it's a proclamation that Jesus has won. The salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come for the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down who accuses them day and night before our God. Hallelujah. Right, so it's like, woo. Then it goes on, and they have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb. This is the church. Conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they love not their lives unto death. Woo! Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. Yes, but woe to you, O earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath. He knows his time is short. Oh, <laughs> so it's triumph, but it's not triumphalistic. Sober. There's stuff to be done. There's stuff to be done. We will overcome. We will overcome. But the battles are real. Therefore, pray and act. Pray and act. Take this seriously. Pray and act. For your prayers and your actions change situations. The first part was true. When we come face to face with this sovereignty, we are changed. We are impacted. Yes, yes, and amen. Absolutely. And so much of praying is saying, Lord, have your way. I just want to make sure that my heart's right in this. Yes. But there's another part of praying where you're saying, do you know what? I know what the will of God is here. And it's not that this should be happening. So I'm going to go for it. Sometimes your will be done is saying, Lord, your will be done. I, I yield up control. Sometimes your will be done is saying, I know you want to save here. So come on, Lord. Both those things are true. We get that. We grow into biblical maturity as Christians. And then we learn how to pray with real genuine power. So it's not okay not to pray. We are to pray. We've been entrusted with responsibility. There are seasons where it's really easy to pray, seasons where it's hard. Seasons where all you can do is sigh. I understand. I understand. There are seasons where all I can do is sigh. I don't know what to pray. When I go to pray, it's a, it's a jumble. I feel opposed at every angle, every corner. I understand. My prayers are really impressive. My prayers are really impressive, but I do want to keep drawing near to God. I'll keep coming. And every now and then, he comes on me in power. And I'm able to take some ground. And I'm like, ah, yes. Ah. You just know that one's done. That one's done. I've got stories, but I haven't got time. I've got time for one story. One or two, one or five. No, just one. Two situations, one story. Two stories really hidden, pretending to be one. Two situations whereby once I, once I was entrusted with a youth group to be the youth pastor, once someone, that, a friend was serving in a certain area of church life and they, were absolute, they knew it was right, but they were absolutely dogged by oppression in it. The youth group I was asked to look after were totally disinterested in Jesus. <laughs> Classic, often, sadly, church youth group. No interest in Christ at all. Both times I went to pray and the, prayer, the prayers started, were just, they were just like, oh my, you know, like God, mourning, groaning, literally like, what, where do we, what do we do? What do we do? But you just say, I'm going to just stay in the presence of God. You know, this, that moment, isn't there, where you think, all right, cup of tea. <laughs> Or you think, hang in there. You know that moment? Yeah. Not just me. Hang in there. And I hung in there. And all I can describe to you is this. During those two prayer times, different times, a few years apart, 
God gave me the victory in the prayer time. In the prayer time, the prayer changed. And I'm almost, you're almost watching yourself. You go from groaning to cheering. You go from, oh, Lord, what are we going to do to it's done. And then you, you just know it's done. You know not to pray about it anymore. It's done. And then you watch it happen. <laughs> you watch it happen. You watch it unfold before your eyes and you go, wow. And you know where it happened. It didn't happen there. It happened back there. I saw a youth group completely transformed. Completely transformed. Hadrian and Nina were part of it. Transformed. And that, that friend of mine, they came up to me about two weeks after the prayer and said, do you know what? I've served in that way, but, but just that crippling fear, that oppression, it's just gone. I'm like, great. I knew what happened. <laughs> Amen? Amen. Some of you who may not know the Lord Jesus, you might think, what on earth is that guy I've been talking about for the last half an hour? Please forgive me. The Bible says that the things of the Spirit, you can't discern them without the Holy Spirit. So the fact it didn't make full sense, I'm not surprised. But you can have the Holy Spirit today. You can know the Holy Spirit living inside of you. The Bible says you've just got to repent of your sins. You've got to get out of the driver's seat and say, I've been doing things my way. It's not what I was made for. I was made to do things in conjunction with the Lord. I'm going to turn away from independence. I'm going to turn away from darkness. I'm going to bring all that I am to God. And I'm going to trust that God's provision of his son for me and his son's death and resurrection in my place, taking my punishment, has made a way for me to be able to come to know God. And you call on the name of Jesus. Say, Jesus, I want to trust you and I want you to be my saviour. I tell you now, he will meet with you and he will save you. He will rescue you where you are. And your faith will not be built on the wisdom of man. It will be built on the power of God. You and I, God has met with me and I'm not the same. And so as we sing a couple of songs now and as we break bread, if you know that you've never been born again, you've never given your life to Jesus, call on the name of Jesus. Say, Jesus, forgive me for my sins. Say, Jesus, I want to follow you. And say, Jesus, come and live in me by your Holy Spirit. Watch what he does. Watch what he does. And then come and let us know and we will, we will support you. We will baptize you. And we will teach you how to follow Jesus. That's what we're called to do. Jesus told his disciples to go and make more disciples and teach them how to obey him. That's what we'll do. That's what we'll do. So once you've, dis- we will never put that on anyone. So once you decide you want to follow Jesus, we'll help you learn how to follow him. It's a decision only you can make. But once you've made that, we're with you all the way. We want to help you. We want to walk alongside you and see you go to maturity. Amen? All right, let's stand to our feet. We're going to break bread. We're going to sing some more songs of praise to our king. We are a kingdom and priests. Amen? So let's just, let's live in the good of that. Let's enjoy that. Let's not allow passivity to creep in.